I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. ES Audio. Hello, I'm Nick Curtis. I'm Nancy Durrant. And this is the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Coming up, former X Factor judge Cheryl's West End debut in 222 A Ghost Story at the Lyric. But is it something kind of mmm? Ghosts aren't literally dead people walking around. I think they're more like Facebook. Right. (laughs) Plus, we'll be joined by the man behind modern TV classics such as Sherlock and Doctor Who, writer Stephen Moffat, OBE. If I write a play, then surely the entire West End will come to me and say, Stephen, we must put on it immediately in the biggest stadium imaginable to humankind. His first play, The Unfriend, is at London's Criterion Theatre right now. But let's kick off with our first review. It's Lemons, 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 Lemons at the Harold Pinter Theatre. So since quietude came in, workplace bullying has gone down, drunk texting is basically over, people are eating more root vegetables for some reason. Sounds like some rock solid days, right? Oliver, you're being... I'm being rightfully angry. It was a fringe hit from 2015 written by Sam Steiner who wanted to play that he could put on anywhere, anytime with just two people and no set. The concept of it is that the government, for reasons unknown and unexplained in the play, has decided to limit everybody's speech to 140 words a day, which causes obvious problems for our couple who have only recently started cohabiting when the play begins. It switches back and forth across the timeline of their relationship and it sort of explores the limits and the barriers of language both within the world of the play and outside it. Would you say that's fair? Yes, I think that's fair. And also, crucially, it stars Aidan Turner and Jenna Coleman, a.k.a. Poldark and Clara out of Doctor Who, um, which I think will make a very big difference to how many people want to come and see it. They bring with them a lot of, uh, a great deal of sort of television glamour, don't they? Yeah. And let's be blunt, both of them are fairly easy on the eye, aren't they? They are. They? <laughs> they know, are. It's, it's a some, very lovely watch. It's something you can't really uh, exclude from from this experience. They are also both extremely good actors, yes. I, I have to say. Um, and it's really good to see them back on the stage. Turner was last on stage years ago in Martin McDonagh's The Left Hand of Inish Moore yeah. uh, in the West End. He was excellent in that. Coleman, I like, the last thing I remember seeing her in is All My Sons at the Old Vic, in which yeah. she was also excellent. But yeah, she was great in that, actually. But it is a it is a, a much smaller role, yeah. I think. Well, it's, it's intensely focused on the two of them. It's just them alone on stage. There's a curved set behind them, but it's sort of unnecessary. There's various lighting changes which tell you when the, the timing of the narrative is changing. Mm. But it's essentially the two of them telling you a very fragmented and broken up story of a romance, but mm. also how people respond to government repression. Yeah, and also how people communicate and fail to communicate regardless of how 
many words they're allowed to use. Should we talk a bit about the performances, which are great? Yes, they are great. Uh, they play a couple who meet at the funeral for a cat, uh, <laughs> which is a slightly twee touch, which is another sort of slight hurdle that you have to get over is the yeah. occasional tweeness of the script. And they're not obviously a sort of natural fit. He's very cocksure, very sort of swaggery. He's middle class. We learn that his parents live in a castle, so actually probably slightly more than middle class. And he's a a musician, but he's highly politicised. She is a lawyer with a, from a working class background who has obviously sort of pushed herself to get where she is mm. and has a complicated and slightly chippy relationship with the job that she's got. Yeah, yeah. And then also with the sort of class difference between them. I, I love them for a play about words. They're surprisingly physical. And given that they don't do, they only kiss once through the course of the whole thing. Spoiler yeah, no, alert. I, I was sort of like, come on, guys. <laughs> you know, let's have a bit more of the, you know, the old... Yes. I kind of, uh, but I just, I slightly liked him more, not the character particularly, but just the performance. He's super watchable, super naturalistic, I think. And as you say, it's quite physical because they, they have to switch between scenes and times all the time. So they're always kind of like leaping from one side of the stage to the other as the scene changes with yeah. the lighting. Um, I think that his ease is probably more to do with the fact that his part is slightly better yes. than hers. And I think what she does is brilliant with what she's got because her emotions run higher than his, even though she's a more restrained character. And she's required to be really quite upset quite often and then suddenly switch you know, to a different scene, a different time and be playful. And fun. and I think that's really challenging, actually, because yes. if you're kind of putting yourself as an actor into that place of being feeling betrayed or be, feeling sad or feeling uncertain, to suddenly switch out of it constantly is must be really, really difficult. Yes, it must be hard. You're right. His performance is the more physical, partly because it's all in the body. It's all in the shoulders and, yeah. and in that sort of that thing that men do where they look like they're, they're sort of chipping an imaginary football into a net, yeah. you know, as a sort <laughs> yeah, exactly. of following through on a thought thing. Um, whereas hers is all in the head and the neck in the yeah. sort of, you know, so, uh, um, as if she's taken aback or suddenly stumbling over something he said. Because he's quite a mansplainer. And one of the ideas in the play is what happens to a mansplainer when he's only got 140 words to, <laughs> yeah. to man. Explain things. That was the thing. I, the, one of the things, just to go back to the concept a bit, that I liked about it is that it's an endlessly flexible metaphor for lots yeah. and lots of different things: for non-communication, yeah. for political repression, for inhibition. It seems to fit lots of different layers. I found it sort of resonant of lots of, of current government policies to restrict protest yes. and striking. Yeah, he couldn't have known, but my God, what a perfect time yeah. for that! Because Aidan Turner's character is part of a protest movement and. And they talk a lot about, you know, whether or not it should be made an exception that you should be allowed to protest in more than 140 words. And yeah, it, yeah I mean, it, it couldn't be better timed. And there's a bit in the play where, where Turner's character points out that uh, Parliament has declared an exemption on the 140 word limit, which, as Turner said to me when I met him for, to interview him before this play, because, yes, I did meet Aidan Turner fans. Um, <laughs> if you haven't read that interview, by the way, it's really great. It's on the website. It's so still check available, it out. yes. <laughs> As he said to me in, in that interview, this is a perfect metaphor for Partygate. It's sort of don't do as we do, do as we say. Obviously, there are more severe ramifications of the concept of the play if you look at more repressive regimes overseas. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, I've, I found it both a stimulating thought experiment and also quite a, a moving love story. Perhaps this is the newspaper editor in me, but I spent quite a lot of the scenes when they were word limited with my mental red pen going... 
oh no, you wouldn't say that all the articles would be gone. You'd never say me. You'd never say you. You'd point anything where you could, you know, do a physical um, act to show what you were saying you would do. I was kind of editing yes. the, the already edited script in my head because I thought, well, how would I do that? And actually I started to feel a bit sort of like that <laughs> in the scenes where they didn't have enough words because it was just... It's actually really quite stressful. Yes. They start some of the scenes by declaring how many words they've got left, uh, each of them. Sometimes there's a wild disparity which leads to an imbalance of power that one of them can speak and the other one can't. And I really like two moments, one where the first time Oliver Turner's character says, I love you. And then you see them saying I love you to each other in very different situations. So sometimes yeah. it's flippant, sometimes it's offhand, sometimes it's terse and annoyed. Yeah. Similarly, there's another moment where they talk to each other, they use the phrase, I really need to tell you something. And that is played out again in, in lots of different ways. Yeah. And it's a real, again, a real challenge for the actors, which I think they they do extremely well. Yeah. Um, there are slight moments of ick in this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they they invent these sort of cheats around things. So instead of saying love you to one another, they say love you. Yes, I, mean, I think Boke would have had to have been one of our 140 <laughs> words. <laughs> no, I, I, I enjoyed this and uh, it's 85 minutes long. You can get out in time for a late supper in the West End. So to go with the word limit thing, as I think I said in my review, what not like. <laughs> After the break, we'll be talking to TV legend Stephen Moffat about his West End debut play, The Unfriend. We'll be back after these. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. We're absolutely thrilled today to welcome our first guest to the new Evening Standard Theatre podcast. He's the former teacher and TV writer best known for his work on Doctor Who, Sherlock and Dracula. And his first play, The Unfriend, has just opened at the Criterion Theatre. Stephen Moffat, thanks so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. First of all, I suppose, tell us briefly, in your own words, what The Unfriend is about. It's about a couple, uh, based on some friends of mine, actually, a couple who meet a lively, charismatic American called Elsa Jean Krakowski on a cruise and uh, they make their final farewell in the traditional holiday way by exchanging emails in the in the certain hope of never hearing from that person again. However, uh, Elsa does email them and she does decide to come and see them. And they're horrified by this, but they run out of excuses. So they've got the flamboyant American coming. At that, uh, at that point, they decide to Google her. And discover that, you know, as they put it, yeah, what is the single worst thing you can find out about someone who's coming to stay? 
She's a murderer. Yes, she's a murderer. She's uh, this all actually happened. Uh, so that uh, I've killed several people and really not 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 nice murders. Like you know, if you kill an abusive husband, I mean, you know, you you, you get a grant for that. You know, uh, so it was an actual proper really horrible murders. And she's coming to stay. Hmm, I see. And the and the in real life, what my friends Peter and Debbie, I changed the names to Peter and Debbie in the play. Um, uh, what they do is they try to compose an email. An email to her uh, to say, please, please, just don't. And they can't, they can't find the wording. How do you say it? You know, I mean, I, I realize that you realize that you're a murderer who's not in prison because of a legal technicality. But who are we to judge? Uh, please don't come and visit us. Um, in real life, that's what happened. They sent the email and never heard from Elsa again. Yep. Elsa isn't her real name because I'm frightened of the real one. Absolutely, um, <laughs> damn uh, right. Elsa, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in uh, in the play. I alter it so that Elsa turns up and they have a week of, uh, you know, social anxiety, wondering how you raise the issue of not being murdered. It's so confrontational, isn't it? Don't kill me. Don't yes. kill our children. Would, I don't it, mean to be would it be fair to say it's a, it's a sort of comedy of embarrassment? Yes. Yeah, well, isn't, isn't everything. Isn't just being British a is, comedy of embarrassment? <laughs> I, I mean, every so day of my life. The thing is, though, even though Elsa is, uh, she's played by um, Frances Barber brilliantly mm. with so much brio, she's such a joy. The thing is, even though she's kind of unbearable, she is also weirdly sympathetic, isn't she? Is. I mean, let's not pretend in our private moments we haven't admitted that there are people in the world who mm. would probably be better off if they just sort of quietly and painlessly removed from circulation. A nice murderer, as I think we've established it. Um, <laughs> yes. yes, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person every day. <laughs> you said in an interview a while back that you sometimes wonder what it would take for you to do a murder. So what is it? What would, well, what would get I, you there? That was for interviews for Inside Man, I think, yeah, uh, which was, is a slightly yeah. darker take on that. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's in the range of any human being. Uh, but I, I, but this murder, these murders we're talking about in this, they're not the ones where you say, well, it was an extremist or I was having to save myself or I was saving someone else or, or any of those things. These are really horrid murders. You know, I, I know, you know, murdering is generally speaking frowned upon among polite people such as ourselves, but these are not even vaguely acceptable ones. This is somebody who's okay with murdering, which has given her a slightly relaxed air. Yeah, yeah. she's kind of, she's cool with it, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's, she's in touch with her emotions in a way that the uh, Peter and Debbie aren't, shall yeah, we absolutely. say. absolutely. She doesn't way. bottle up that perfectly normal psychotic impulse. <laughs> <laughs> Think how much nicer we'd all be if just occasionally we helped ourselves to the murder of that defenceless, innocent person. Are, are you more Elsa or are you more Peter? I'm are so you? totally Peter. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And so Reese, by the way, right? We, yes. We're both in knots all the time. That's yeah. Reese Shearsmith who plays Peter in the in the play. Yeah, Reese Reese Shearsmith, the brilliant, brilliant Reese Shearsmith from Inside Number Nine. Yeah, we both uh, agree that when, when we've worked ourselves up to really confront somebody, to really sort of say, right, I'm going to lay it on the line to you, uh, whoever it is, we start with, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, oh, I'm sorry is not the way you lead, is it? And it's out my it's out my mouth before I can say anything. I'm sorry. I realise you've had a lot on, but I've already lost, haven't I? I've already made their excuse and apologised. Why don't I just leave backwards? So if 
if a, if a murderer turned up at your door, you'd be hard pressed to turn them away, would you? You'd have sort of Jeffrey Dahmer in oh, your no, spare I, room. Listen, for... I would have no problem in, uh, in getting my wife to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm with you on that page, definitely. Mm. Uh, Reese's character, Peter, he he loves also being cross about things. Um, do you like? I mean, are you someone who gets who just sort of loves getting riled up at the news? Uh, yes, I, I, I'm constantly complaining. Uh, about things that I can't remember fully, and uh, <laughs> I've noticed, I've noticed that, uh, I, I, like a lot of people, I've become an expert in so many things recently. Isn't it funny? I'm epidemiologist right here, and an economist mm. at the same time. Previously, I knew nothing about that, but then suddenly, I knew everything about viruses, yep. how they spread, and how it might affect the economy. I marvelled at the inside coming out of my <laughs> mouth as I complained about how everybody wasn't doing exactly what I had just thought of. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Um, why a play, Stephen, at this stage? I mean, you're obviously God, you me out of television. It was this or greetings cards. Um, no, uh, well, I, was, I, I originally, when I was very, very young, which uh, you, 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 know, you can't see me on a podcast, I'm not anymore. I was very, that's what I wanted to be was a playwright. I wanted to write plays. And then I, I sort of fell into television and accidentally got paid quite well. So I thought I just stayed there for, you know, 30 odd years. The way you do when someone hands you a check. Yeah. Um, when Peter, the real Peter, whose name is Peter, told me the story. It just, the moment you hear that story, that's a play, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah. You somehow, if you did it as a TV thing or a movie, you'd have to see other, the other bits outside the house. Yeah. You'd have to see Elsa on the boat. You'd have to, you'd, you'd have, have to know flashbacks, it. wouldn't you, to yeah, actually yeah, yeah, her yeah, crimes? Because yeah. that's what, you know, the, the slight literalism of television does that. But God, I can even see the Netflix version of my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> isn't it depressing? It? Um, it, it's just you'd have too much. Yeah. Whereas it, just by, you know, for the most part in the play, you just see the living room. And you don't have to account for that when you're doing a play. You don't have to explain that. If I was doing a, the TV version, then I'd have to account for the fact we never leave that room. You just see that slice and you only get a sidelong glance at Elsa or indeed Peter and, De uh, and Debbie. And I think that was, that was just right for that. Also, I really, I mean, I just come out of... Uh, Doctor Who and Sherlock and I uh, I was just going into another couple of huge projects and I just wanted to do something different yeah. to prove I was still young and vibrant it didn't work <laughs> oh I think it did I, I think love it, the, I, think I it love did. the fact that like just a, an amuse bouche to you is a West End play <laughs> oh come <laughs> now I didn't know that a mild diversion yeah. no I wrote a play oh, listen no listen I mean before anyone get uh, uh, thinks that I'm powerful or useful or uh, or effective in any way whatsoever the first thing I did when I left Doctor Who and Sherlock was get very pumped up at how great I am. I mean, not just because I'm an expert epidemiologist and, uh, and economist, but because I'm a great writer. And I thought, if I write a play, then surely the entire West End will come to me and say, Stephen, we must put on it immediately in the biggest stadium imaginable to humankind. And I thought that's what, exactly what. So I wrote a play and nobody wanted it. <laughs> I mean, I, I sent it to theatres and they didn't reply. And I was thinking, I see. Oh, well. This is life outside the TARDIS, is it? I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all Chris Chibnall. This isn't will it? be welcome news to writers all oh, across yeah. the country out there, I imagine. Yes, young writers, you'll still get turned down and ignored when you're successful. <laughs> Come and join the party. What a great message to go home from. Uh, yeah, the room will always be full of backs. But you do, um, uh, when it did finally struggle. No, 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 that's not what happened. I That play never got on. Oh, sorry. Oh, I beg your pardon. Okay. And that play uh, so this was turned really down. really your first play. This my is first play, your first my real first play, right. was rejected comprehensively and largely ignored right. by the theatre world, including friends of mine who just went, you know, 
uh, who were encouraging enough to say things like, eh. uh, <laughs> So uh, now the advice I give to young writers is if, if you get turned down or your show flops, which and mostly you'll get turned down and mostly your show will flop. So listen to this is useful. Blame yourself and write something else. Right. So I thought, and now finally I thought, oh God, that, that sounded so heroic when I said it. <laughs> didn't it? It sounded great and wise and mighty as I spoke from Mount Olympus. And then I came down off Mount Rushmore and said, all right, I now have to write another play and follow my own advice. Well, so I wrote well, a second well, if it play. Isn't the consequences of my own actions. Yes. Um, one, um, <laughs> one quick question I did want to ask you um, with reference to your career in Doctor Who is why don't we see more sci fi in the theatre? It's an imaginative space. You would think it's a space where you can do anything. <laughs> Me and Russell are always saying, you know, what's wrong with the story? There aren't death robots. <laughs> <laughs> this is more death robots in this. More death robots. Yes. West End producers take <laughs> note. The other, well, look, I don't know why there isn't more sci fi on the stage. And I, I, having done. Uh, I've written two plays, one of which didn't even get on. I'm hardly an expert, but I would suggest that science fiction like comedy is perhaps uh, uh, tagged as a little bit entertaining and not sufficiently blaming of the government. Maybe, but I think they should have science fiction on stage. I think would be brilliant. Should. Maybe brilliant. that might be your next uh, foray. Oh, could be. I mean, I've done a lot of that, you know, I yeah. mean, because, of, because of Doctor Who. Uh, I mean, I, actually, what I really missed uh, was comedy. Because, as you know, Doctor Who and Sherlock are tremendously serious shows. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I did have that conversation with Russell as well. We put a lot of jokes in this. Yeah. yeah. We're always improving things. That yeah. and death robots. Death Indeed, robots. yes. Death, death bots. Brilliant. Death bots. Bring on the death bots. Stephen Moffat, thank you so much for joining us. Coming up, we'll be talking about former Girls Aloud star Cheryl in the supernatural thriller 222, A Ghost Story at the Lyric. If you're enjoying the podcast, make sure to give us a rate and hit that follow button. So, let's talk about 222. Yes, let's. What are you doing? Putting the crucifix up? Well, that was his idea. No, mine. I'm getting Frank's hammer. Jenny, this has gone on far enough. Come back inside. Let's talk about this. Nothing to talk about. I thought Cheryl was pretty good. Yeah, whisper it. Yeah, I think she is pretty good. She's the latest in a a, a string of of unusual, sometimes untried or left-field casting decisions to play the role of Jenny in Danny Robbins' modern supernatural story. And it adds an extra frisson each time they chuck one of these names in. It started with Lily Allen back in 2021. who was also brilliant. Who was also brilliant. Um, I don't know if I quite go so far as to say Cheryl is brilliant, but she's perfectly capable and quite moving. And um, her technique is good. And it's Cheryl. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's really exciting. I actually went, unusually for me, and they let me go in on a a preview, which was really kind. um, I think because it, you know, they felt like it was ready so on a press night obviously it's a particular crowd you know it's a very friendly crowd it's a theatery people crowd all of that stuff but on preview you know it is you're absolutely it's your punters yes um and the audience was markedly different than the usual west end i mean ultimately mainly because they were not old yes like there were a few you know of the kind of straight play gray hair types but it was actually really it was very much more a kind of like night out in town crowd yes and this was on like a sunday at six o'clock there was a real buzz people were really excited when it started 
Um, you know those stories about Elizabeth Taylor in Private Lives, how every time she came out, when she was playing it with Richard Burton in the West End, she came out and every time she walked out, there was everybody gave her a standing ovation literally for turning up and she'd be like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then she'd start <laughs> acting. And like, obviously that didn't happen, but although it would have been funny if it had, but when the lights went down, there was whooping in the audience, which, you know, which which can only, which is only because, you know, it's got Cheryl. Yes, it, you know? indeed. And it, and it was actually, I think everyone was just like, oh, ooh, pleasantly surprised that she was really, I, I, I really enjoyed her performance. I really enjoyed her performance. She uses her own accent, which yep. is nice as well. And a bit of a surprise given the, the previous actress who played, as we say, Lily Allen, who, who was using received pronunciation. Yeah, and I then presume, Laura Whitmore Laura as well. Laura Whitmore, Mandeep Gill, who've done, it, um, who've done it in between. She's quite natural on stage. I, I think um, slightly stiff at moments, but I think she's got a great gift for empathy, Cheryl. I mean, yeah. that's what made her so good on, on X Factor. And um, she's got those, those huge sort of sympathetic eyes and you, yeah. you stare at them on stage and you just think... Yes, I believe this woman is is yeah. scared to death and worried that her new home in Hackney that she and her husband and their 11-month-old daughter have moved into and are stripping back and um, rebuilding is haunted. Yeah. The one that I've seen, the only other person I've seen who's done it was Lily Allen. And as I said, I really liked her performance. And I think that Cheryl is a bit more harassed. She's a bit more like very tired mum of an 11-month-old ch child. Um, there's a little bit more of that kind of crossness in her um, rendition of Jenny. But I think that, I think it really works. And to be honest, like if you were married to Scott Kareem's um, Sam, then frankly, I would be harassed and cross all the time as well. Because he, I mean, God, the West End's packed with mansplainers, isn't it? Like, <laughs> it's mansplain season God, out in the West End. He is so annoying. He's really annoying, which again was a slight surprise to me because I remember Hadley Fraser doing it opposite mm. Lily Allen and he seemed a much more sympathetic character. You're right, the two characters seem much more angry this time. It's a much yeah. shoutier play and it's slightly coarser and less tonally varied yeah. because of that. Um, he's an astronomer, Sam. He's a massive know-all. Very early on, his university crush, who they've invited over for dinner with uh, her new sort of boyfriend, but actually he's just a sort of builder who she's settled yeah, for. Yeah, she's sort of shacked up with. Uh, but she sort of says Sam's catchphrase at university was, I think you'll fight. I know, God, what an arsehole. Yeah, I mean, I would have run for the hills. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> wouldn't have let him get me pregnant. I can it tell It's very funny. It's very funny, though. I hadn't really noticed the first time around. I, this is what I quite like seeing things the second time around because you start to notice stuff that you didn't see the first time. And one of those things, well, some of those things are the tells that give away the twist. Yes. But of course, you would not notice those if you hadn't seen it before. Um, but I really enjoyed catching up with those, like seeing them again. But the other thing is that, that, they, that she tells the story of then they met in a refugee camp in Uganda. And yes. I'm like, what? Really? I'm sorry, that's, the, that's just like, oh, I don't want to be friends with these people. It's just, <laughs> it's just like, oh, it's just terrible kind of like year off gap yarn nonsense it's it's very it, it i don't know it really jarred actually that that little bit for me but yeah, I, I didn't really notice it the first time i don't think i, think I noticed just, it the first it just time just didn't really ring true somehow no. i don't know but um it's a nearly new cast except for jake wood who plays ben the builder who is um lauren sam's sort of uh, mate from university's uh, boyfriend um he's come in in place of another actor who was taken ill. And so, and he was also in the first cast with Lily Allen, confusingly. But it's very interesting 
seeing the, the, the difference in the performances between the men and the women, because I feel like the two male roles are actually they're much more annoying people than the two women. I think Danny Robbins has written two women really quite well. Lauren is is very sympathetic, if somewhat spiky. Jenny is, you know, really the kind of uh, nucleus around which all of this this um, moves. And she's very, as you say, she's she's actually rather moving and she's super sympathetic. Louise Ford plays Lauren and her and um, Cheryl together, I think they really... They anchor it in a way that kind of keeps you interested in it and 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 stops it from being sort of naff and ridiculous because there are kind of hilarious sort of screams yes. every now and again yes. and you know and kind of lighting mad lighting and it is it is a little bit silly. It's a, it's a little bit silly and it's a little bit phony. You know, it's very obviously sort of rigged to make yeah. you jump out of your seat. A but lot it of the doesn't time. really pretend to be anything else, no. does it? But one of the things I love about it is that juxtaposition between sort of old school silly jump scares yeah. and quite interesting contemporary ideas and modern yeah. takes on the ghost story. And part of it is the dynamic between superstition and rationalism yeah. and the sort of idea of a ghost being an old school thing and the modern world. One thing I loved about the, about the play was that you very rarely see any new plays that are set in, in proper modern settings where people are shouting at the Alexa or scrolling through their phones, which they do constantly in this. They're constantly looking stuff up. Yeah, you know, exactly. you'd think if you look to the West End stage most of the time, you'd think that the mobile phone hadn't been invented. I know, it's <laughs> true, it's true. It really is a very, very contemporary contemporary so, setting. So to stick the idea of a ghost story in that world, I think, is very interesting. And it throws up lots of ideas that are explored when the couples argue amongst themselves about whether ghosts are real is maybe the reason not everybody sees them is that they are like refugees. Only a few of yeah. them get through. Yeah. Maybe they are, are fragments of consciousness like dementia sufferers, so they can't communicate, which is why they can't communicate properly and why they're sometimes really they can't make themselves ideas, seen. They're lovely they? ideas. Um, maybe they're sort of revenants who've been stirred up by gentrification. I thought that was a lovely thing. And yeah. one of the things I like about the character of Ben is that he grew up yeah. nearby in Hackney. I think it's it's clearly set in, in Cray territory in Hackney yeah. and he is furious about gentrification. Yeah, although he's doing a lot of work for He is also people. handing out yeah. his, his card to all these middle class <laughs> people nice coming in that. to do their bathrooms for them um, and sometimes move in with them as in the well, case with, with Lauren. So I think there's a lot in there. There's a lot of detail in there. It is also, it's very effectively scary. I did literally sometimes <laughs> feel my hair stirring on my scalp. The woman um, next to me leapt out of her seat at I, least twice. It I warned my so guest this funny. time just, just, saying, just a few pointers before we yeah, go exactly. into this. Don't wear white and take a glass of red wine in because if you do you will end up covered in it yeah it's also very funny there's some really lovely witty lines in there i love uh, cheryl's character jenny at one point says to lauren you must think i'm mad and she says i work in mental health i think everybody's mad <laughs> yeah, exactly. which i really liked and i love the debate about um the way sam calls ben mate and oh, ben yeah. says it's like he's on safari <laughs> <laughs> Which I loved. I think this is great. I think there was a certain snippiness about this when it first appeared, partly because of the stunt casting, yeah. partly because it's a genre piece. Mm -hmm. And genre pieces have almost entirely disappeared from our theatrical landscape. You don't get um, sex comedies anymore. You don't get comedy thrillers anymore. And you don't get ghost stories apart from 
the woman in black, which is shortly to close. I think the combination of the, of the repeated stunt casting, which, which keeps it fresh, makes it interesting, makes it very annoying for trained actors who feel they're <laughs> being shut out of it. That's what keeps this play fresh and what's made it so, the surprise hit that it is. And yeah. I'd be very happy to see it run, you know, and run, 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 run. Yeah. And as Theatre Twitter has said, you know, in the future, all of us will play Jenny in 2.22 for 15 <laughs> minutes at some point. That's it for this episode of the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis. And I'm Nancy Doran. We'll be back next Sunday. Make sure you hit rate, follow, and if you'd really like to, you can leave us a review. See you soon. <laughs>